Matthew 5, 1 to 16. Our text this morning is 5, 10 to 12. And seeing the multitudes, Jesus went up into a mountain. And when he was set, his disciples came unto him. And he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are they that mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are they which do hunger and thirst after righteousness, for they shall be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall obtain mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the children of God. Blessed are they which are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are ye when men shall revile you and persecute you and say all manner of evil against you falsely for my sake. Rejoice and be exceedingly glad, for great is your reward in heaven. For so persecuted they the prophets which were before you. Ye are the salt of the earth, but if the salt hath lost its savor, wherewith shall it be salted? It is henceforth good for nothing, but to be cast out and to be trodden under foot of men. Ye are the light of the world. A city that is set on a hill cannot be hid. Neither do men light a candle and put it under a bushel, but on a candlestick, and it giveth light unto all that are in the house. Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father which is in heaven. Father, the perceptive reader this morning will note that the first beatitude and this last beatitude offer the same reward, that unique relationship to the kingdom of heaven. Help us then to understand not only the point being made today by way of particular emphasis, but the bigger, broader point that is being made and has been made over weeks of study concerning this characterization of the kingdom citizen, which kingdom citizens we in Christ by faith believe ourselves to be, even though we still pray, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Father, today we recognize that we as your citizens do indeed live in foreign soil. And so we pray today that you would help us to uniquely be receiving the truth of Christ as delivered in our text. And for that, we will praise you in Jesus' name and for his blessed sake. Amen. Again, verse 10, blessed are they which are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are ye when men shall revile you and persecute you and say all manner of evil against you falsely for my sake. Rejoice and be exceeding glad, for great is your reward in heaven. For so persecuted they, the prophets, which were before 
you. Fear of public speaking is common fear. Even those that believe that God is leading them to uh, preaching and teaching ministry can seriously struggle with the fear of standing before a congregation and making good and godly sins. Uh, it's interesting because there is a righteous fear to be associated with any time you stand on your feet and want to make good and godly sins. And then there comes the real, realization that it will be harder for you as a speaker if you do. Let me say it again. The first fear of the speaker is to stand on his feet and make good and godly sins. The second fear that comes along is the realization that when you do speak good and godly sense, it will not go well with you. Or in other words, most congregations don't like that. Young men in training are often taught to cast their eyes above the faces of the crowd. In other words, to look at heads, which in this congregation are increasingly balding. But nonetheless, to look upon heads in order to mitigate their personal fear while still being perceived as speaking directly to the congregation. I've always believed that that kind of advice is a little bit contrived and uh, really seldom uh, helpful. Uh, whether speaking person to person or person to a group, eye contact always makes for good address we begin our treatment of the Lord's eighth and final beatitude by noting a deliberate shift in the Lord's eye contact. I'm asking you to note with me this morning a deliberate shift in the Lord's eye contact when there is not a single word about eye contact in the text. As Jesus is delivering his messianic manifesto, verse 10, he begins, according to the pattern of the eight Beatitudes, by saying, blessed are they. But then please note that in verse 11, you have a restatement of this Beatitude with a pronoun change. Blessed are ye. This subtle shift in pronouns moves the principle, as stated, verse 10, to a particular group of people within the crowd, verse 11. Now we know from verse 1 that the Lord's own disciples came unto him and formed the first and foremost intimacy circle in the large crowd gathered unto him. We can rightly envision our Lord stating the principle of blessedness to the whole of the crowd, verse 10, and then with shifting of his eyes to Peter, to John, to James, and while making direct eye contact with others of those his disciples, he tells them of the particular suffering for his sake soon to come. The pronoun shift from they to ye is the uniqueness of the Lord's focus and emphasis 
being directed uh, to the aspect of his most close followers. And in fact, literally, we must insist upon the fact that verse 11, verse 12, verse 13, 14, 15, 16 are directed first and foremost to the Lord's most intimate followers. Taken as a whole, verses 10 to 12 assures us that any person living by the Beatitudes 1 to 7 will without doubt experience the eighth. If you are living 1 to 7, you will in some form experience the eighth. As Paul said it to his protege Timothy, yea, and all that will live godly in Christ Jesus shall, as a matter of fact, suffer persecution. All you have to do is go along. Go along with the lost. Laugh at their jokes. Enjoy their parties. Keep quiet about the truth of God in social settings, even among your own family. And it will cost you nothing. In with the lost is the easy way to avoid any cost for identification with the Lord and his agenda. Jesus said, Woe when men, all men speak well of you, for so did their fathers to the false prophets. Luke 6, 26. The word persecution literally means to flee while being chased. In one good sense, the righteous policeman chases or persecutes the criminal. When you see the the cop go by with lights of flashing and he's going after someone who is speeding through the stop sign, uh, he is seeking to righteously persecute the criminal. And I'm all for that. I'm all for that. God is all for that. Uh, But the idea of persecution, as Jesus talked about it here in the biblical case, uh, is the chasing of the one who lives rightly for the Lord's own sake. All kingdom citizens are chased after as if they were the problem, as if they were the criminal, as if they were the person who was out of whack. For righteousness' sake, verse 10. For the Lord's sake, verse 11. The persecution that comes to the believer is the persecution specifically and narrowly focused upon that which is marked by the righteous' sake, or for righteousness' sake, verse 10. And of course, for the Lord's sake, verse 11. So you and I come away from this passage understanding that in Christ we are chased for the sake of Christ. Chased for the sake of Christ. If we complete a simple word study of the related things therein associated with persecution, we can say that persecution commonly comes in three forms, namely verbal insults, verbal insults, or reproach, you might say. Number two, physical harm. And three, slander. The common forms of persecution or being chased as a Christian involve 
verbal insults, physical harm, and slander. Now, for the first time in our little weekly outline used to analyze the Beatitudes, uh, we have a little bit of a breakdown uh, in regards to the application of that thing, for we want to talk about the disposition of King Jesus and the demand upon the citizens of his kingdom and the disclosure of uh, truth uh, uh, when principle is applied. And uh, in order to do that, we have to make sure that we have the big picture in mind. If you look back to the very first beatitude, blessed are the poor in spirit, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Then when you come down to verse 10, blessed are they which are persecuted for righteousness sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Kingdom of heaven, verse 3, kingdom of heaven, verse 10. Kingdom of heaven, verse 3, kingdom of heaven, verse 10. The, the two parallel uh, kingdom of heaven stand as bookends. They box in the Beatitudes. So that you not only know that when you're going to talk about this matter of, of persecution, that you have to talk about it, but you have to talk about all it. You have to talk about it in the light of uh, the, the whole package of the Beatitudes here, as is framed in, in the Scripture by the Spirit of God, uh, by the repetitious phrase, kingdom of heaven. So when we begin to apply this idea of, this, of the, of the uh, disposition of Jesus and the demand upon the citizens and, and the disclosure that is here, uh, you almost have to jump out with a disclosure, which have to do with this idea that poor in spirit and mourning over sin and being meek and hungering for righteousness and being merciful and being pure in heart and functioning as a peacemaker are all things God's people surely desire or should desire and appropriate. But then, standing out like a sore thumb is persecution, not to be desired at all. I don't want any, do you? I don't want to be rejected. Do you? I don't want to be dishonored. Do you? I don't want to be persecuted. And, uh, and uh, the Lord doesn't expect me to desire to be, uh, want to be persecuted uh, in and of itself. And uh, so when we approach this uh, last uh, emphasis in regards to the Beatitudes, we have to tweak our outline just a little bit so it makes sense. Because Jesus didn't have a persecuted attitude or a persecuted disposition. Uh, I, Jesus doesn't demand of us that we love persecution. Uh, uh, the Lord, uh, the disclosure is not that if you, if you really want to please the Lord, then you're going to let people shoot at you. <laughs> Come on. Uh, that just does not work, either in regards to common sense, nor as it relates to biblical sense. And so we have to tweak it just a little bit from the aspect of the way we've been addressing the first seven Beatitudes now that we come to the eighth. Number one, disposition. King Jesus was willing to suffer harassment or harassment, as they tell me it should be pronounced. Opposition, verbal insult, slander, physical harm, and even a criminal's death for righteousness' sake. And he did suffer in the will of God the Father for the saving agenda of heaven. 
In that sense, we can talk about persecution and the disposition of the king. The king has a disposition where he's willing to suffer for the sake of the righteous agenda out of heaven. The Apostle Paul summarizes the gospel truth of Christ in this regard, saying he made himself of no reputation and took upon him the form of a servant. Humbling himself, he became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. Uh, Our emphasis in Hebrews, most recently preached, emphasizes that that flashback to the Psalms where the willingness of the psalmist to suffer in the will of God becomes understood in the New Testament expression of Hebrews as the Lord's own pre-incarnate attitude when coming to the earth as our Savior. He was willing to be the ultimate sacrifice for our sins. Isaiah's prophecy of Messiah includes the words despised, rejected, man of sorrows, and acquainted with grief. Our study in Hebrews will soon bid us to consider him that endured such contradiction of sinners. Uh, The television world of Christianity would have us believe that when Jesus walked on the earth, everybody loved him. Such a lie. The Bible bids us to consider him that endured in that first advent the constant, persistent chasing and contradiction of sinners. Part of the mysterious reality of the gospel we preach is that God the Son become man was after one year of popular public ministry persecuted all the rest of the way to the cross where he died for our sins. And the faithful Bible student soon realizes that even in that first year that is called by scholars the popular year of public ministry, there were 10,000 dishonors to Jesus Christ while on earth. The patterns of sinful dishonor, the disobedience, the defamation that had been directed towards God on earth since the fall of Adam, were focused upon Jesus the Christ in the first advent. No one can think once knowing him that he didn't know what he was getting into. He came to this world to die for our sins, eyes wide open. His suffering was not without end and is not without eternal reward. His suffering was not without end. Our Lord Jesus suffers no more. 
even though he constantly lives to make intercession for us according to the will of God by, by pleading, as it were, uh, the, the reality of his blood once shed. He does not suffer any longer. He is the Lord of glory. His suffering was not without end and is surely not without eternal reward. And let me just remind you this morning of one of the great biblical emphases concerning what it is that the Lord gets as his eternal reward. About the time you started thinking about increasing your value, that's next week. Throughout the ages to come, God will show the exceeding riches of his grace in his kindness towards us through Christ Jesus. The slain lamb is the ruling, ruling lion over all the earth. And so thus we pray, as kingdom citizens, thy kingdom come. Consider the demand in regards to this interesting eighth and very different beatitude. Kingdom citizens are those who during the days of their earthly sojourn are willing to suffer for righteousness' sake. Willing to suffer for the sake of King Jesus. These are they that follow the Lord and are loyal to the Lord. Yesterday when I was doing the big review of Matthew and Hebrews and 1 John, because that's my Lord's Day today. Uh, there was one particular text of Scripture, I'm sure I'll reference it again tonight, but there's one particular text of Scripture that kept on banging in my head, and I, and I thought to myself, Lord, where am I supposed to use this verse? Which, which, one of these, which one of these sermons, which one of these lessons am I supposed to use this verse? And I never got a definitive a, a, a answer as to one, so I'll just, I'm just planning to say it in every, in every service. But uh, uh, it's John 8, 12. Jesus said, I am the light of the world. You've all heard that. I am the light of the world, Jesus said. And then he said, and he that follows me shall not walk in darkness. That applies to this idea of being chased. That applies next in Hebrews, to the way that you live as to avoid willful sin. That applies directly to the study tonight in 1 John of walking in the light as God is light. God is light, and in him is no darkness at all. Jesus is the light of the world, and those that follow him do not walk in darkness. 
That's a powerful statement from the lips of our Lord. And that brings together the idea of demand and disclosure again in this text. The disclosure here is that anyone that does follow the Lord and is loyal to the king will experience elements of persecution and suffering for it. Loyalty to Jesus is never popular in the wide sense. I do call your attention for the sake of balance to the word when in verse 11. Blessed are ye when men shall revile you and persecute you and say all manner of evil against you falsely for my sake. Jesus particularly said to Peter, James, and John, the rest of the disciples, when men revile you. That statement clearly means two things. One, sinful men will revile, will verbally insult, will slander the faithful followers of Christ in every generation. And number two, it will not be every waking moment. There will be seasons of suffering for righteousness' sake. There will be periods of time in which persecution escalates and de-escalates. But the disclosure is that persecution is inevitable for faithful followers of the Lord Jesus. Persecution inevitable for faithful followers of the Lord Jesus. It's interesting to think about those two concepts of sinful men will revile faithful followers and it won't be every waking moment. Here, in this wonderful country in which we live, the United States of America, we have enjoyed the longest run of no great persecution against the Lord's Church on earth. And it has been a long run of it. Almost 200 plus years of it. Although if you go back to the very beginning, God's people were taking it in the chin. But the reality is, here in this United States of America, we've enjoyed a tremendous run of persecution, not hardly even being a thing, except the social kind of persecution. Persecution not hardly even being a thing for those of us that name the Lord. But as I've told you before in recent days, and I say it again, not because I'm trying to be a fear monger, but just because I think it's true to the age in which we live, those days of casual Christianity are either over or about to be over. The days of easy believing in Jesus will either be 100% antichrist or you'll be chased. I'll be chased. Two things are additionally brought forward here as encouragement uh, to the faithful. One, the fellowship of suffering for God's sake and the purpose 
and his purpose is clearly seen in the life of the Old Testament prophets. Jesus said, verse 12, Rejoice and be exceeding glad, for great is your reward in heaven, for so persecuted they the prophets which were before you. Now, I think the best way to take that verse, verse 12, is in the strictest, narrowest sense of office, revelatory office. The prophets were the revelatory office of the Old Testament scriptures, Genesis to Malachi. The apostles are uh, those men who are in the communicational office, the revelatory office of communication for God uh, in in that which we call the New Testament. And here, the Lord Jesus is addressing Peter, James, and John, and other of the disciples who are the foundation as the apostles of the New Testament scriptures and saying, you can rejoice and you can really be happy because of the fact that when you are chased for the kingdom's sake, when you are chased for righteousness' sake, when you are chased for my sake, then you can rejoice because you enter into a unique company of fellowship, namely the fellowship of those unique servants of God who were used of God to give us the B-I-B-L-E. And yet the Lord did not use the word apostles in the text, making it easy for us because of other scriptures that we know say the same. For us to understand that while that may well be the understanding of the text in the moment of time, as Jesus eyeballed Peter, James, and John, the reality is, is that you and I ought to rejoice when we suffer for righteousness' sake, when we suffer for the sake of Christ, uh, verbal insult or reproach or a sense of slander, and if need be, even some physical harm or financial loss, because of the fact that we're clearly identified with the Lord's purposes, we ought to rejoice because it moves us by way of earthly experience into a very, very selective and highly desirable fellowship of godly men and women. Fellowship of the righteous in suffering connects us to the actual living experience of Old Testament prophets and New Testament apostles. And as we have already stated to you, when we enter into the fellowship of the righteous, if we ring true to the Lord Jesus over the days of our earthly sojourn, there is indeed in this passage of Scripture inevitability concerning being chased. And then the second thing I point to in regards to the text is that the experience of righteous suffering for the Lord's sake is promised his reward. It is on this foundation that the disciples were told to rejoice and be expressively happy. The reward for faithful suffering is, in the words of Jesus, great. Now there's an overused word. In our society, great. Football playoffs, great. Entertainment, great. 
use the word great a lot. How was that food? Great! Great! Makes a big difference as to who says it's great. You sit in the room with a kid watching some doopy cartoon. Say, how was it? The kid say, great. Are you going to take the kid's word for it? Do you believe the cartoon was great just because the kid thinks it's great? No. What that little snotty boy says is great is hardly great. And most of the things that adult men say are great are hardly great. Greatest of all time. Great. But the great that we call your attention to in the Bible is not the great on the lips of a snotty-nosed boy. It's not the great on the lips of a full-grown man who loves golf more than God. But it is great on the lips of the Lord Jesus. Jesus said great. And my argument would be, if Jesus said it was great, it must be great. Or, to put it in modern vernacular, worth it! And so saints now have sung for a long time, it'll be worth it when we see Jesus. I'd like now, in the few moments that remain, to just quickly survey some additional scriptures to remind you of the Bible's instruction concerning righteous suffering for the Lord's sake during the days of our earthly sojourn. And I want to start with the historical record and just remind you briefly of the historical record and pattern of suffering among the Lord's faithful as recorded in the book of Acts. Acts chapter 5. Go there with me, please, for just a quick moment. Acts chapter 5. The apostles were imprisoned and miraculously released. And after being rearrested, they were confronted once again by the authorities. And you have the record here in Acts 5, 17. Then the high priest rose up and they and all they that were with him. The high priest and his crowd, that religious group of professing believers which is the sect, the Bible word sect translates the Greek word heresy, which are the heresy of the Sadducees. And those guys were filled with indignation. And who were they angry at? They were angry at Peter, James, and John. Verse 18, and they laid their hands on the apostles and put them in common prison. But the angel of the Lord stood uh, by night opened the prison doors and brought them forth and said, Go, stand, speak in the temple to the people all the words of this life. Tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth, so help you God. You got your get-out-of-jail-free. And so then you have the marvel of the next day when the religious rulers realize that their prison cells are empty. And those guys are at it again, and so they have them rearrested. 
and then you have uh, uh, one of their own, uh, a member of their group uh, that is engaged in the aspect of, uh, of uh, going to uh, speak uh, to the issue when it causes great uh, consternation. But first you have Peter's response, 28-29. Uh, you have Peter's response to the council concerning them forbidding him to speak the truth of Christ. He said, uh, they said rather, uh, did not we straightly command you that ye should not teach in this name, the name of the Lord Jesus? And behold, ye have filled Jerusalem with your doctrine and intend to bring this man's blood, Jesus' blood, upon us. Then Peter and the other apostles answered and said, we ought to obey God rather than men. Well, that caused a great response among the rulers. They thought of all kinds of evil things that they could do to those rascals, those disciples, those followers of Christ. But eventually one of their own comes to the, comes to the fore and, and uh, speaks a little bit of human wisdom. And uh, as a result of that, uh, we read in verse uh, 40, and to him they agreed. Uh, when some guy came up and said, oh, no, 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 let's, let's not kill him. Let's not, let's not stick him with a knife. Let's not hang him with a rope. Let's not shock him with a stick. Uh, let's not trample him with cows. Uh, let's not uh, uh, have him be kicked to death by sheep. Uh, let's not, let's not, let's not, let's not. Let's just, let's just uh, see what happens. Let's just see what happens. And uh, to him they agreed. And it says, verse 40, And when they had called the apostles and beaten them, Oh, that must have been fun. They commanded that they should not speak in the name of Jesus and let them go. What did the apostles know at that moment? Number one, they knew uh, that they needed some Bengay or, some, uh, or some, uh, uh, some kind of muscle rub because they had taken a beating for the sake of Christ. And what else did they know? They knew that they were going to be getting it again because uh, while they were told don't speak, they already knew from God they had to speak. And so they'll be speaking again. And so because they're going to be speaking again, they're going to be beaten again. And again. And again. Until finally, somebody says, that's it, stick them. That's it, hang them. That's it, crucify them. That's the way it went. But notice in verse 41, the reaction of the apostles as instructed by the Lord Jesus on the hilltop, Matthew 5. And they departed from the presence of the council, rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer shame for his name. And then they said, people today don't like to be confronted with Jesus, so let's not confront anybody with Jesus. Let's keep it a secret. No, verse 42. And daily in the temple and in every house, they cease not to teach and preach Jesus Christ. Oh, God, give us that boldness in this place. Pattern of history. I'd like to say a lot more, but the hour is just going so fast. Just flip to Acts 14. Of course, Paul, the Apostle Paul, was one of the problems. He was one of the persecutors. And how does God get rid of a persecutor? He might save the guy. <laughs> how did Paul get rid of, how did God get rid of uh, Paul the persecutor? He saved the guy and gave him a special calling in Christ Jesus. That might happen again if we're faithful to the Lord's purpose. But Paul, who went from persecutor to preacher, Paul 
then establishes a pattern by which he ministers in the church plants where he goes, and you have a record of the church planting ministry of the Apostle Paul recorded in Acts chapter 14. And in verse 21 it says, And when they had preached the gospel to that city and had taught many, they returned again to Lystra, to Iconium and Antioch, three places where they had planted churches. And what did they do when they went back to those churches? Here's what they did. Verse 22, Confirming the souls of the disciples. Building up and strengthening the souls of the disciples and exhorting with both means to challenge and to comfort, challenging and comforting them, the disciples, to continue in the faith and that we must, through much tribulation, enter into the kingdom of God. What did Paul do? Paul went back to his churches. He confirmed the souls of saints, and he challenged them, and he comforted them to know that suffering for Jesus' sake was normal. Suffering for Jesus' sake is normal. 1 Peter chapter 4, 12-16 is the key passage of Scripture to be read. I'll leave it for your own reading. 1 Peter chapter 4, 12-16 is the key passage to appropriate the things of which we preach this morning. We conclude with these words, those with right attitude, poverty of spirit, mourning over sin, meekness, those with right appetite for God and his word and righteousness, who take right actions in purity and mercy and peace, can expect attack. Here's the outline. Attitude plus appetite, plus actions of a godly sort, equal attack. That's what Jesus said. But the attack is not the last word. King Jesus said, you can rejoice because you are numbered among the blessed in your Lord. Our blessed Lord is interested in quality, not quantity of souls saved. He counts hearts, not heads. Father, help us to understand. 